A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. of us have probably heard that adage, familiarity breeds contempt, and we understand how that works as a mechanism. Prolonged exposure to anything, a product, an idea, a personality, can lead to overexposure to the point at which we resist what is being offered and think that it can no longer be effective. If you're in the field of marketing, it makes sense to exploit this concept. In order to maximize profits and grow your consumer base, you have to make your customers believe that they need this year's model of what you're selling. The problem with this mechanism is that, according to the Bible, it's a lie. In reality, your customers could do just as well with any earlier version of your product. Scriptural wisdom says, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus begins his public ministry by teaching in the place where he had been raised, the ones gathered in the synagogue do not accept it. It's not even what Jesus is saying that makes them stumble, but the fact that he is saying it. They know Jesus. He was raised there as a boy. Isn't this Joseph's son? If we submit to scripture, its authority is valid not on account of the one teaching it, but based on the teaching itself. So the ones gathered in the synagogue in Nazareth stumble over the messenger, and in doing so, they discard the message, which is unfortunate. What's worse, in this particular case, the messenger is someone they should really be paying attention to. Only the anointed one of Elohim could read the words of Isaiah and proclaim, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing with actual authority. Only Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, could utter those words without it being just a gimmick to boost numbers in the pews. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. Today, Noel Neff and I are working our way through the lectionary of the Orthodox Church, and we are discussing a passage from the Gospel of Luke. Welcome, Noel. Hi, Father. In today's podcast, we will be exploring Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, from the lectionary on Friday, September 1st. For those of our listeners who are following along with us, let's start by hearing scripture. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, 
Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Thanks, Noel. To start with, this passage is Jesus' manifestation as the Messiah in his hometown. And it comes at the start of his public ministry, immediately following his temptation in the wilderness and his declaration as the Son of God by God himself. After Jesus stands and reads from the scroll of Isaiah, then sits down, we hear the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. This is a decisive moment in the biblical story. Are the hearers, Jesus' own people, going to accept the message he is bringing? It seems like that's always the main question Scripture sets in front of us. Are we going to hear and accept the message of Scripture brought to us? I'm pretty sure we all know the answer to this question, but let's keep exploring. You mentioned a couple of interesting details, that Jesus stands to read from the scroll and sits down when he is finished. It's details like these that often get overlooked as boring or unimportant to the text, but they are clues for how we ought to hear the text. Otherwise, we are sure to take the teaching out of context. I think another interesting detail is that Jesus was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And we get this quote from Isaiah 61. I just want to point out that this particular quote from Scripture is often pulled out of context by Christians who overlook details like these and who want to use it to fuel their own agendas that aren't based on the context of the text itself. I have watched many Christians take these words as a slogan to anoint themselves for their own social justice narratives or cultural and political ideologies. I think it is essential that we pay attention to the fact that Jesus was handed the book. The text does not say anywhere that he chose it for himself. As often as this passage is misused, I think we can safely say that even today, those listening to scripture aren't hearing it. Right, and neither are those listening to Jesus in this passage. Instead, they marvel and ask, isn't this Joseph's son? Let's look more closely at those details that you mentioned. The way this passage is set up, it's clear that Jesus is submitting to his role as it is written in Scripture. We're told that he is in Nazareth, and that's where Jesus had been brought up, that he followed what was the custom, and that he was handed the book. He didn't even choose the reading, but rather found the place where something was already written. See the precision in the phraseology here. Far from showing Jesus taking initiative and asserting anything of himself, it rather reflects his obedience to the will of God as expressed in the prophetic words of Isaiah. It's as if he's slipping into a role that has already been set up for him. And despite his passivity, his role holds the greatest authority and power ever, which is the proclamation of the words of Elohim. That Jesus, the Messiah of Elohim, stands up to read the prophecy of Isaiah and then closes the book and then sits down all indicate a scene of judgment. Psalm 82 begins by saying, God stood in the assembly of gods, and being in the midst of them, he judges gods. A little later, in verse 30 of this chapter of Luke, 
we will hear that Jesus passes through the midst of the people in the synagogue when they attempt to get rid of him. All of these details point to the ultimate authority of God as judge, as expressed in the words Jesus is proclaiming. His statement that these words are now fulfilled in your hearing reinforces that this is a decisive moment of judgment. But the response of the people is to marvel. Marveling is not a reaction of submission. It is rather relying on your own understanding and questioning something that challenges it. This happens frequently in the New Testament. Jesus is from Nazareth, so it's fitting that in this story his ministry begins there. In this passage, we hear how he he is rejected by his hometown, but Nazareth is not the religious center of Judaism. His rejection here looks ahead to and prepares us for his rejection by the religious leaders in Jerusalem later in the story, which will culminate in his crucifixion. They tried to seize him and kill him in this passage, but as we hear, Jesus passes through the midst of them and goes his way. But it's all moving in that direction, using this hometown rejection to set the stage for the one later. We hear it in the parallels of their reactions. See how in Luke eleven thirty-eight, for example, the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus not washing before they eat is expressed in the same way. He marveled. So Jesus is proclaiming the words of Scripture, which always is a word of judgment against those hearing. The passage from Isaiah announces healing, liberty, and recovery of sight. It proclaims good news to those who are poor, blind, oppressed, and captives because the justice of God will prevail against the injustice of men, which are enumerated in that same Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and favor the persons of sinners? We want to hear this scripture in Isaiah as a word of judgment against its hearers, but at the same time as a proclamation of good news, since God himself is establishing justice. Thus, Luke calls the words gracious, which proceed out of Jesus' mouth. In spite of this, the response to him in Nazareth is, isn't this Joseph's son? But which Joseph, right? The amazing thing about scripture is that it might actually be pointing us to a Joseph we aren't expecting if we don't hear scripture in its entirety. Exactly. Luke's genealogy in chapter 3 had already told us that Jesus was, as supposed, the son of Joseph. The repetition here is striking. If we're hearing scripturally, it draws our attention back to chapter 48 of Genesis where Jacob Israel gives the blessing to the two sons of Joseph, his son. That passage is pertinent here because of the two sons of Joseph were half Egyptian, their mother being Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, and thus outsiders. Also, there Jacob intentionally blessed with his right hand Joseph's younger son, Ephraim, rather than Manasseh, the older. And this was done against the expectation of Joseph. This detail looks ahead in the biblical story to God's election of whom he wills, which often makes the first last and the last first. Let's hear how Luke's phrasing here recalls the story of Joseph. Luke 3.23 says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Compare that with Genesis 41.46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. In Genesis, we hear about the birth of Joseph's two sons at the end of the seven years of plenty and right before the seven years of famine, the number seven representing divine fullness, as in full accordance to God's will. Likewise, we can understand Jesus' manifestation as the Messiah here, as he reads from Isaiah and declares to those present that these words are fulfilled in your hearing, as an equally pivotal point in the biblical story. The gospel proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, as opposed to the so-called sons of God who favor the persons of sinners, is going out to the nations. That same message, good news slash judgment, is offered also to the people in Jesus' own city, but acceptance of it requires ears to hear what is being taught. Instead, those in his own city stumble on the message because of their familiarity with the messenger. In Genesis, we learn that Joseph's two sons were Egyptians and thus outsiders, and that becomes a pertinent detail for our discussion of this part of Luke. When Jesus stands and reads from Isaiah, and the hearers in the synagogue question who he is, he cites two examples from Scripture in which God's grace is extended via the prophets of Israel, specifically not to biblical Israel, but rather to outsiders. Let's hear the immediately following verses in Luke, verses 23 through 27. He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is not speaking with diplomacy here. He's calling out the people for their expectation that he will, as the Messiah, perform wonders for his own people in his own town. But by rejecting his message, by questioning who he is, is this not Joseph's son? They are de facto rejecting the grace that is being offered by the message itself. To reinforce that God does what he wills, Jesus gives them two examples from Scripture in which wonders were performed outside of Israel on purpose, a foreign widow's son brought back to life and a Syrian leper healed, even though there were many widows and lepers in Israel at the time. It's a powerful statement that teaches, in a nutshell, that God shows no partiality. In rejecting Jesus as a prophet, the hearers in his hometown are rejecting the favor that is coming from the Lord. Luke employs some wordplay here, applying the same term, vekton in Greek, to speak about the rejection of Jesus, translated as not accepted, that Isaiah uses to proclaim the year of the Lord's acceptance or favor. Ironically, while Jesus is proclaiming the Lord's favor to the hearers in the synagogue, they are not regarding him with favor as a prophet. Moreover, if the hearers reject the message and or the messenger, that message and the grace that comes with it will go out to whomever will receive it, even to Sidon and Syria, 
two scriptural examples of outsiders par excellence. I want to take us back to something you just said. If the hearers reject the message or the messengers, then the grace that comes with it will go out to anyone who is willing to receive the message. I think we are all willing to receive the grace, but how many of us are actually willing to receive the message? As you pointed out, we are being reminded that Sidon and Syria are examples of outsiders par excellence. By this, you mean that scripture is using these examples to show us how someone or a people can be shown in a good light in order to teach us, the hearer, something. But we can't say that they are the good guys in the narrative. Scripture doesn't give us the opportunity to make blanket statements like this. The genius of scripture is that if you are hearing all of it and not taking certain passages out of context for your own agendas, you will also hear that the outsider isn't always seen in a favorable light in scripture. Scripture can also use the same character or people in a bad light to teach us something. Scripture can make an example of anyone or any people as it wills for its agenda. We see this happen to Sidon in Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 24. When Tyre and Sidon choose to be of one accord with Herod and asked for peace with him, Herod, sitting on his throne, gives the people an oration, and they shout in reference to him, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, Herod is struck dead, but the word of God grew and multiplied, which is as you have said, Father, God shows no partiality. For us, we can hear this teaching to imply that we cannot claim partiality for ourselves, nor can we claim partiality for others we wish to favor. We are not hearing scripture when we do this, but we are instead following our own feelings and motives. It can be very tempting to hear this passage from Isaiah 61 as a commandment of what we are to do. If Jesus is anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, then we must also be anointed as his followers. This is categorically false in scripture. The message is the context, not ourselves or the poor. Yes, we are commanded to love our neighbors, but our neighbors are not the context of scripture either. It's terribly boring to say that the answer is simply to hear scripture when we could be anointing ourselves for the work of our own agendas. But if we hope for the grace that the message has the potential of bestowing on us, then this is what we must do. And in scripture, the grace is the message. The mistake of hearing Jesus reading from Isaiah and then applying it to a social agenda is that we are not really hearing the teaching, but we are interested in ourselves. We want grace on our terms, but it comes to us in the teaching of Scripture, which is the bread that gives life. That can also be a curse. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, both blessings and curses are presented as realities, the former for obedience to the Lord and his commandments, and the latter for disobedience. If we don't like that aspect of Scripture, though, it's painful to hear a proclamation of judgment, and we don't want to accept it, just as the hearers in Nazareth didn't want to. The liberty of the captives to the oppressed that Isaiah proclaims is from God's perspective, not ours. The children of Israel who were enslaved to Pharaoh were freed so that they could become enslaved to the Lord their God. So we are liberated from one master to serve another. That doesn't sound like good news unless you realize that the one who set you free can offer you life 
and the one who had enslaved you cannot. This seems to be exactly what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This seems fairly straightforward. We can either be slaves to sin and have the freedom to do as we will, but in the end die, or we can be slaves of God, produce fruits of holiness, and have everlasting life. With sin we earn death, with God we are gifted eternal life. Thank you, Noel, for joining me today. Thank you, Father. And thank you, listeners, for being with us. We look forward to meeting again with you soon. This concludes episode 23 of A Light to the Nations. Hello? Good evening. How are you this evening? Not bad, who's this? Um, I'm doing a survey. Do you listen to the radio? Yeah. And do you know Prince and NPG? Yeah, Prince, Prince, uh, Prince uh, Rogers? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm raised it, yeah. Well, what about it? Okay, um, Edgar of the new single, Cream. Yeah. You, I like, heard it. you like the song? No. You don't like it? No, I don't like anything Prince has ever done. And why is that? Because it's too decadent and more, it's the message is the same. There's no variety. It's all, all, every, time, every song he does is the same message. It's all sex, sex, sex. Since the wrong message to younger people, you know, sex, drugs, and limousine music, children grow up battered. They grow up despondent, desolate, unwanted. Well, I guess you had a personal problem there, right? No, I don't have a personal problem. It seems like you have one of them. No, you right? do. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You got a problem. What, what kind of life you live? I didn't call you, but I'm a